We've been listening to the letter of 1 Peter for the last five weeks. Last week, we heard that the death and resurrection of Jesus has become the point around which everything else in the world revolves. Do you want to know who you are as a human being? Do you want to find purpose in the world? Do you want to understand God? For all of these questions and more, we must look to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And on top of being the answer to some of life's deepest questions, the cross gives us a a dual purpose. It serves a dual purpose for us, for Christians. First, the cross is the place of our salvation. Many of us have heard this a lot, but it's something we need to hear repeatedly. All of us here are guilty. Every single one of us here is guilty. To say this isn't a worm theology, if you've heard this term before, to believe that humans are absolutely worthless. It's not that. That's not what we're saying. It's simply true. We're all guilty. None of us are as good as we'd like to think we are. None of us are always on the side of the right. And others of us, we bear a wretched shame about ourselves. There are some people in here who aren't as bad as they'd like to think they are. Nonetheless, all of us bear guilt and shame, and self-esteem is not the solution for it. We've rebelled against God. We're part of a world that's rebelled against Him, against truth, against goodness, and against beauty. But Jesus embodied the truth, goodness, and beauty to which we all aspire. To which we're all called, but repeatedly fall short. And still, Jesus' commitment to remake and refashion the world into His true, good, and beautiful image put Him at cross purposes with basically everyone. And we shouldn't pretend that if uh, that, that we perfectly understand Jesus so that if we were in the shoes of the people back then, we would have treated him differently. Uh, that's what some have called chronological arrogance. It's simply not the case. Jesus's life ends in a confusing and sad sequence of decisions in which people decided he should be killed. It was uh, basically this mob mentality in which it was hard for anyone to say No. This is one of those essentially non-negotiable facts of history. Jesus was killed. But what did his death mean? Had he not risen from the dead? Know this for sure. We would not be talking about it today. We wouldn't be. But because he did, because he was God's chosen one, because Jesus was what we are all supposed to be, the accumulated weight of our sin and our shame was poured out on Jesus. Remember that the first human, Adam, after he sinned, he was exposed. He realized he had no clothes. And he was ashamed. Jesus was the sinless one. But because of that evil that Adam started, this kind of, this boulder that just kept on moving down and accumulating weight, Because of that evil, Jesus was stripped naked and he was crucified. He was exposed before his enemies. He was also exposed before his family and his friends. And in doing that, Jesus bore our shame. 
He took on the shame that all of us bear. He entered forever into our guilt and shame for us, to redeem us and to make us alive again. When you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, here's what's happened. You're born again into a new life. You enter into this new reality in which you're free from guilt, you're forgiven, and you're free from shame because your identity becomes rooted in God and His perfect love for you. You can be who you're made to be. You don't have to live into your shame and your guilt anymore. The cross is the place of your salvation. Do you believe this? Are are you becoming more and more free from shame and guilt as you move through your life? And if you're not, why? Even if you've attended church for a long time and you've heard this over and over again, if you're not becoming more free from shame and from guilt it could be that you haven't truly believed in Jesus and given your life to Him. It could be that you're not yet born again. Now, this isn't something to to beat you up about, but it's just something you need to ask yourself. Am I born again? Do I really know God and His salvation? Do I trust in what Jesus did, that it was for me? And if you don't, why? Why? Would you talk to me or some other Christian here? You need to hear this this morning. The cross is the place of your salvation. But this is not all that the cross is. Peter, who's writing this letter, has discovered this other secret at the heart of the universe. So this cross is the place of our salvation, but it's also the model for a truly good and free life. The cross is also the model for a truly good and free life. Again, this is what we heard last week. Peter knows that when you try to do the right thing, when you consistently follow the ways of God in the world, people aren't always going to like it. They won't always understand it. Sometimes they're going to give you a hard time because of it. That's what's happening to a lot of the people he's writing to. Being a Christian has made them stand out. And in some ways, this is happening in our world too. Being a Christian is often looked on as outdated and small-minded. So here's what Peter says about this difficult road Christians sometimes have to walk. This is in chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Peter's telling us that the cross is the only way to make sense of our lives in this world. All of us are called to a form of self-sacrifice, of patient endurance, whether that's because you're being picked on for your faith or it's simply because you being obedient to God means a hard road. There's going to be some form of self-sacrifice. And Peter's saying that when you do this, your sufferings are somehow linked up with Jesus' sufferings. In a strange way, they are connected with the sufferings of Jesus. 
And most important, the sufferings themselves are a, are a large part of the way God is working to bring salvation into our world even now. I want to make sure you hear this part. When you suffer because you're trying to walk with God in the world, you're trying to move through something difficult, that suffering is actually part of the very way God is working to bring redemption into our world. Right now. So just to make sure you don't think I'm making this up, I want to show you another place where the Bible says this. So the Apostle Paul was the most influential Christian in the early church. It's hard to argue this. He wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. He would easily make a list of the most influential people in history. But he also experienced as much suffering as anyone through history. He experienced physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional torture of a sort. All because of his commitment to God's kingdom. Because he felt within him that his vocation was to carry out the work of God's kingdom. Because of this, he faced lots of pain and anguish. Now, here's what the Apostle Paul says on one occasion when he was facing all of this pain. Indeed, we felt as if the sentence of death had been passed against us. Hear it again. Indeed, we felt as if the sentence of death had been passed against us. Paul was often being rejected by people and let down by people. His friends were abandoning him because he was so committed to God's kingdom and sometimes they just couldn't make sense of the way he was seeing things. So he often felt lonely, crushed. This isn't just physical pain, it's emotional his pain was coming from every angle. And at some time, he came to the point of feeling as if this sentence of death had been passed on him. Have you ever felt that much despair? As if the only thing left for you were the end. Death itself. This is what Paul felt. But then, here's what Paul says. It's this dramatic turn. This is the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul says all of this was so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He delivered us from so great a risk of death, and He will deliver us. Paul is saying the same thing Peter does. Life in this world doesn't make sense apart, of, apart from the cross. Jesus died, but He was delivered from death. And Paul says he learned to trust God when he was close to the point of death himself, and then God delivered him. It's the same language as what happened to Jesus. Jesus was close to death. God raised him from the dead. Paul was close to death. God delivered him from death. And he says this is the ongoing way that he expects God to work in his life. God will deliver us again, he says in that passage. He delivered us once, he'll deliver us again. He expects that he's going to constantly come up against death of sorts and that God's going to deliver him. This is the way of life in a broken world. This is the way of following God in a broken world. We struggle, we fight, we come up against new and deeper challenges. I'm at this point in my own life. Some of you are going to laugh at me. Maybe it's youthful naivete or something. I'm at this point where I'm realizing that as you get older, life doesn't get easier. 
Now, it, it might get easier in some ways, but it gets harder in others. And the net effect is probably that it's harder as you get older. Over and over, in deeper and more profound ways, we learn to put our trust in God. And He delivers us. And the more we follow God and experience His deliverance, the more His kingdom is sown around us. Peter is saying, the cross and resurrection are at the center of the way God has made the world. Death, but then deliverance. And this is how God's bringing redemption through us. Now, some of you are experiencing a lot of suffering right now. Suffering that makes you question God, makes you wonder if God is even there. How could He be working in this? The cross is the only thing that's going to help you make sense of your life and your suffering. It's the only thing. Part of what the cross says to us is that this is what it means to live for redemption right now. It means to move through suffering, to keep going, but to experience the power and hope of God's presence within it. So are you experiencing God's presence in your suffering? If not, are you at least searching for it? Don't give up. Hold on and it will come when you least expect it. Slowly but surely. Even suddenly. Now some of you... All of this seems so foreign. Some of you aren't experiencing much suffering. And I'm not saying you should necessarily pray for it. But you shouldn't look on those who suffer as if they're abnormal. As if something's wrong with them. And you shouldn't stay away from their suffering. I don't want to get into another conversation with them. I know what it's going to be about. The cross also teaches us that we're meant to suffer with those who suffer. This is the way God is bringing redemption. Jesus Christ suffered on behalf of us, for us, with us. And this is what we're called to do for each other. So the cross serves this dual purpose. It's the place of our salvation. It's the place where God makes us His children. But it's also the model for a truly free and good life. Now, at the same time, When we say that the cross can give us a truly free, good life, what do we mean by that? I mean, clearly the cross is a tool of death. How can it also be this tool of life? So Peter's been talking off and on throughout the letter about Jesus' suffering and death and how we're called to live in the same way. And then he quotes this passage from Psalm 34 that Jan led us in a few minutes ago. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. And then he goes on, let them turn from evil, let them do good, let these do, do these sorts of things. Can we honestly say that living the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, is the way to a truly good and full life? See, what Peter is saying is that if you want to truly do good in this world and live a full life, the end of that life in some ways is going to look like the cross, a life of self-sacrifice, of self-emptying love. Now, I know this is counterintuitive, but this is exactly what Christianity says across the board. 
So I'm going to take the last few minutes to show you just two of the freedoms we find when we, when we choose to embrace the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. Here's one. First, the cross gives us freedom from enemies. The cross gives us freedom from enemies. Listen again to verse 8 in chapter 3. If you have your Bible, you can open it to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 8 right now. You can fact check me later if you need to. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, when Peter writes this, it sounds very much like he is telling Christians how to get along with Christians. If you read other letters in the New Testament, this is the same kind of language that the writers use to tell Christians how to get along with other Christians in the church. You need to be humble toward each other. You need to be tenderhearted. You need to have sympathy toward each other. It's, it's similar stuff across the board. But then listen to the next verse, the very next verse. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for a reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. That sounds much closer to the kinds of things Jesus said about how you treat your enemies. You love your enemies. You pray for those who persecute you. These sorts of things. You don't return this uh, uh, cent for cent. That you, you, you don't give uh, an eye for an eye sort of thing. Peter's changed the focus without telling us. First, he tells us how to treat each other, but then he tells us how to treat those on the outside, enemies. You know what he's doing here? He's telling us that we should be consistent in how we treat people. It doesn't matter whether people are in the church or outside of the church. We should respect them. We should seek their blessing and not their hurt. Whether we like people or not. In fact, what he's also saying is that the church should be a training ground where you learn how to treat people. So we learn how to treat people here, how to be tenderhearted, how to care for each other. And then we go out into the world and we don't treat our enemies like they're actually enemies. We actually bless them instead. You see, the love you nurture between each other in the community of faith, this tenderheartedness and humility should spill over into your relationships everywhere else is what Peter's getting at. Now, I think it's important we notice these are the types of characteristics we often talk about as unique to certain people. So that person has a high tolerance for sympathy for other people. That person just has a soft heart. That person is so humble. And we see it as, that's their gift. That's their gift. And, and we kind of get an out. You know, I'm just, I'm just not that tender. That's not me. I, I'm not that sympathetic. Sorry. You should probably go talk to so-and-so. But Peter's telling us these are the traits that we're all called to develop, no matter how unnatural, challenging it may be for us to develop those traits. Uh, now, this isn't saying anything about uh, Frank negatively. I'm about to tell a story. <laughs> I'm going to transition. I had the privilege of attending Frank Doherty's uh, retirement reception at JMU this past week. And several of his colleagues got up and told stories about Frank, talked about the things they appreciated of him. And they joked a lot about how much Frank likes numbers. In case you don't know, Frank 
uh, for the last 31 years basically has projected the enrollment for JMU from year to year. Uh, so they talked about this a lot. In fact, there, Jacob Mayani, he was from Church of the Incarnation, was standing beside me during this uh, event, and he would lean over a couple of times during this thing and whisper, Frank really likes numbers. He really likes numbers. <laughs> Which should make you feel good that Frank is over the finances for our church, right? <laughs> Here's what was beautiful. One of Frank's colleagues went on about his... Brilliance. Lots of them had talked about how humble, how kind he is. And then this particular person got up and went on about how Frank's a genius. You feel so intimidated. And this man was actually over Frank. He asked somebody, how do I lead this group? And they said, well, if Frank says something, it's right. He's like, how do, how do I lead this group? And Frank is embarrassed. I'm sorry. Um, a little bit. So he, he went on about how bright he is. And then he said, but, you know, I realize what Frank's real genius is. It's his good heart. And it was a beautiful moment, Frank. It really was. 31 years people have seen Frank in this environment, and this is what they've gleaned from him. It was obvious from the whole event that Frank's Christian character, his humility and kindness had spilled over in his work, and it hadn't gone unnoticed. You see, those are, that's not a random character trait. That's a character trait that is formed in a body of Christians and then spills over into the rest of one's life. Now, I don't know that Frank had any enemies that he had to win over at JMU. I doubt he did. But even the category of enemy has little relevance for Christians. Because regardless of whether we like a person or not, we're called to pray for them. We're called to pray that God will bless them. In the words of verse 11 in this passage, we're called to seek peace with them. Think about all the energy that goes into making war. All the battle plans. Do you put that same amount of energy into trying to create peace with people? That's what this passage is calling us to do. Now, so, so the first year that Katie and I were married... Uh, we, we were having a spat about something. It, it hasn't happened since then, but the first year we were married, we were having a spat about something. And we were in one of those places, I don't know if you've ever been in this place in your marriage, where you were just locked in and you could not get past it. So I went to a guy in our church and I asked if we could talk with him and his wife. And I remember him telling us, it doesn't really matter whether your marriage is going well or not you're pretty much called to treat each other the same way. So if your marriage is going well, you're supposed to love each other and you're supposed to pray for the other, right? This is what a Christian should do. And then he says, if your marriage is not going well, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them. It's the same thing. And I was so frustrated. Like, who's right here? Can you just tell me who's right in this situation? That's what I wanted. As simple as the advice was, it stuck with me. This is how we're always called to treat people. Regardless of whether they're friends or they're enemies, we love them and we pray for them. You see, when we follow Jesus in the way of the cross, we're freed up from worrying about whether people are for us or against us. Whether we're for them or against them. Because even if they're enemies... We should love them. If for no other reason, because when we were God's enemies, He loved us. And He made us His friends. 
So we're called to do the same. So how is the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, the way to a full and good life? It frees us from our enemies because we can now love them. We can now give them dignity. Now, second, the way of the cross is the way to a full good life because it frees us from fear. It's the way to a full good life because it frees us from fear. Have no fear of them, Peter says. And he's talking about those who might pick on you because of your faith or those who might misjudge you. And he says, don't be troubled. Earlier in the passage, Peter says, don't fear anything that's frightening. What does that mean? All of us encounter things that are frightening in life. He's not saying things aren't frightening, but he's saying you have a reason that you don't have to fear it. Following Jesus on the way of the cross is the only way of life that completely guts fear of its power over us. And only when fear loses its power over us can we live a completely free and good life. Otherwise, we're paralyzed. No matter what someone says or does to you, no matter what the world throws at you, they can't touch your core identity because you're God's child. He won't allow you to be destroyed. Don't all of us move through life just kind of hedging our bets a little bit? What if people reject me? What if I lose my job? What what if we can't make the payments this month? What if just life falls apart? What if the relationship doesn't work, doesn't make it? If our identity is not in Jesus, it feels fragile. Life itself feels fragile. But the cross says it's not fragile at all. Your identity in your life can be secure. Because no matter what happens, whatever failure, whatever shame comes, even if death itself comes, you will not be destroyed. God raises the dead. Now, what does fearlessness look like? Is it bravado? Uh, What do I care attitude? Do to me what you will. No, it looks like a quiet, firm confidence. A quiet, firm confidence. We can stop with any of the posturing, the pretending about who we are. Even our weaknesses don't have to be feared because God's strength is powerful in weakness. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, Peter says. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Growing up in my church youth group and in college ministries, I heard this verse a lot. It was taught with a special emphasis on the preparedness part. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. And I appreciated that Stephanie, when she read this passage, looked up when she said, yet do it with gentleness and respect, because I very rarely heard that part of the passage. It was taken to mean that we should always have this indisputable evidence of God, some facts in our back pocket, so that when someone comes and challenges us, we can always just lay them out there and say, Take that, buddy. So I went to LSU where there were plenty of victims for me to try my arguments on. And I, 
maybe you weren't this way, maybe you're much better than me, but I was always, and these were random people, they weren't even friends that I was talking to, they would never have wanted to be friends with me after this, but I would always look for the kind of mic drop moment where I could just nail them. You're so wrong, and you don't even know it. But the sense in this passage is that Christ is to be such an integral and authentic part of our lives that you're able to speak personally about Him, about why you have hope. It's not even about why someone else has hope. It's about why you have hope. Your hope isn't merely in your head in the form of arguments, but it's in your very identity, in your being. Christ has loved you. So you have hope. And you're able to do this without being shaken. And notice, the passage phrases it, be able to give a defense to anyone who asks you. Essentially, it's saying, you're on trial. You're in the dock. You have to give a defense. But you're not afraid. Because Jesus has gutted fear's power over you. Nothing the other person says can hurt you. So you have this quiet confidence. You can speak about him with gentleness and respect. And you can love the enemy that you're speaking to. You see, the way of the cross frees us from enemies and it frees us from fear. It is the only way to a truly free and whole life. Do you trust in Christ as Lord that His cross is the place of your salvation and the place that you will find a true, free, good life? Are you loving your enemies and trying to make them your friends? This is what God's done for you. Is fear crippling you? Are are you living a diminished life because of fear? Will you look to the death and resurrection of Jesus? Because this has become the center around which the whole world revolves. And if you're his child, you have no need to fear. Your identity, your hope are secure. So you can go into the world with this quiet confidence that you belong to him. You don't have to be shaken. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.